Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, recorded June 17, 2022, titled, Condemned to Hell for Subconscious Activity. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I have atheist friends who are sincere searchers for truth and who are not fools. The psalmist is saying, that's dumb. I don't think fool is exactly the same as stupid. They're really shallow. We deal with these all the time. Well, this ought to be fun. I'm a little bit slow. So what do we got? Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Thanks for listening to the hashtag STRask podcast with Amy Hall and Greg Kokel. This one comes from Graham. I understand that someone can, quote, suppress the truth and unrighteousness or be a, quote, fool who has said in his heart that there is no God. I have atheist friends who are sincere searchers for truth and who are not fools. Are there other scriptural explanations for why some people do not accept the existence of God? From the phrasing of the question, I'm going to assume that Graham is a Christian believer. The fool has said in his heart quote is from Psalm 14.1. The suppressing the truth in unrighteousness quote is from Romans 1.18, which leads up to Romans 1.20, which insists that God is clearly seen by every human, no matter what they might say. It just so happens that my very first video in this apologetic series never used Romans 1.20 on an unbeliever. Because, since the content of my own thoughts is literally the only thing I can be certain of, and cannot be wrong about, if I'm capable of honestly assessing my own non-belief in the Christian God, then I've proven the Bible to be wrong on this point, and therefore not infallible or inerrant. Question asker Graham observed that he has atheist friends who are sincere seekers for truth, and that this is in conflict with Romans 1 in the way I describe. That is why he specifically asks Greg Kokel for other scriptural explanations. In Graham's mind, and mine, Romans 1 fails to provide adequate explanation. Well, I think the verses that he cited are kind of the main ones in this kind of discussion, but I think there's something else that's going on. And um, there are things that you, and people believe, that which beliefs they're not always consciously aware of, all right, that influence um, the way they act and things they say. These are, I think they're called dispositional beliefs. In philosophy, there is a notion of dispositional beliefs versus occurrent beliefs. The basic contrast is between a thought consciously endorsed, a current belief, and information available to the mind for endorsement, dispositional belief. I believe that wasps' things are painful, and I have now made this belief a current by actively thinking about it and remembering the times I was stung. But most of the time, I am not actively thinking about wasps. So, this belief is usually dispositional. In fact, in a few minutes, I will stop thinking about wasps, and this belief will again become dispositional as my mind engages in other things. 
and a dispositional belief may or may not begin as one consciously considered. That wasps' things are painful, for example, began for me as consciously considered during my first wasp experience, but was then relegated to dispositional. This would be called a reflective belief. There are also pre-reflective dispositional beliefs. For example, a vehicle could pass by me as I walk my dog, and I take no conscious notice that the driver is wearing a hat. However, the visual inputs indicating that the driver wore a hat are stored as a memory, and I will now have a dispositional belief about the driver's hat wearing, even though I've never consciously considered the proposition. This belief is pre-reflective. If someone later asks me about the vehicle driver, it would become reflective occurrent. We all carry countless dispositional beliefs that we are not actively thinking about. Some reflective and some pre-reflective. To illustrate, I think there are, I think of circumstances, and anybody can think in your life, where you were finally kind of confronted by someone about an attitude that you seem to display. Um, and maybe you, for a long time, have resisted that. But in a moment of, of clarity, you realize deep down inside you really knew the truth of what's been explained to you, but for emotional reasons or whatever, you've fought it. Uh, this is not an unusual experience in the human condition. Okay, we suppress consciously things that we know to be true, but we don't like. Okay, and I think that's the category of dispositional beliefs. Perhaps, though not precisely, an actively consciously suppressed belief wouldn't be dispositional. And it's unclear what Greg means when he says, for a long time you've resisted that. And, of course, most dispositional beliefs are not suppressed in Greg's sense. They're merely not actively considered. In her paper on repressed memory, Professor Komarin Ramdan Ramnuk noted that Generally speaking, the reflective and pre-reflective levels are integrated and influence each other in various ways so that one's conscious beliefs are in line with one's actions. However, the pre-reflective is not fully transparent to the reflective. It follows that one can have a pre-reflective belief that is not in keeping with one's reflective beliefs, but which will manifest in one's actions. To respond to Greg most charitably, we'll look specifically at the subset of unconscious dispositional beliefs that one would call suppressed beliefs. These are beliefs the subject cannot consciously endorse, and so cannot avow, for Freudian reasons. They are attributed to her on the basis of her actions and emotions. If, for example, I feel resentment when my parents buy my brother a birthday present, try to undermine him when we are staying at my parents' house, but consciously believe that my parents love and treat us equally, my psychiatrist might believe that I have a suppressed belief that my brother is our parents' favorite child. My suppressed belief is in conflict with how I consciously take the world to be, and the actions and emotions that flow from it are subsequently out of step with my reasons. But Greg characterizes suppressed belief as things we know to be true, but we don't like. This is problematic if one wants to define belief in a traditional way, as endorsing a proposition. The suppressed belief is not endorsed consciously. Are we endorsing propositions subconsciously? Would that not make us mere passengers in our mental life rather than the drivers? 
Are we condemned for our subconscious activity? So this is a real category, but I think that notion can help us understand something here. You have, say, atheists who will say, I'm not suppressing anything. I actually do not believe in God, and here are the reasons why. I am a seeker of truth. But of course, when you listen to the reasons that they give, in many cases, they are, and this is descriptive, this is meant to be descriptive, not disparaging. They're really shallow. We deal with these all the time. I could spend the rest of my life interviewing people and filling volumes documenting the abjectly shallow, though probably genuine, reasons that they give for why they are Christians. And yet, according to the Bible, salvation doesn't require good reasons. It requires only belief, faith like a child, as it were. On top of that, I've dedicated this entire channel to exposing the shallowness of the so-called best and most popular arguments, including the vaunted Greg Kokel and his Stanza Reason team, whom I happen to find particularly vapid. I deal with them all the time. They're really shallow, really shallow beliefs. Not meant to be disparaging. But the new shallow water mark might be this absurd implication that poor reasons for a belief necessarily implies secret unbelief. You'd have to posit that virtually everyone who disagrees with you politically actually agrees with you. That no kid ever really believed in Santa. That everyone with an irrational fear is faking it. That the uninformed are secretly informed. Look, I could even grant that every non-believer who ever existed had terrible reasons, and that wouldn't be in the least relevant to the topic of whether there can be a non-resistant non-believer. In fact, those beliefs they say they believe in, they don't follow through with on a regular basis when they're not defending turf. I remember the atheists I had a conversation with, um, what's his name? We had a picture Oh, uh, Doug. On, Doug, yeah. Doug. Indeed. Doug from Pine Creek. Yes, and when he's pressing me on his understanding or view of the origin of morality, he uh, <clears throat> he's talking about the Darwinian evolution, a standard direction to go with that, so they don't have to go to God. But, of course, Darwinian evolution can only produce, if it can produce anything like that, it can only produce a relativistic morality. Uh, but, of course, atheists object against the God of the Bible as being immoral. And so my question to Doug was, so what you're saying is the depiction of the God of the Bible disagrees with your personal evolution. And he said, yes. I confirmed with Doug that he's spoken to Greg three times. I've been through all three and couldn't find this question or answer. Though the second time they spoke, Greg makes a similar claim. What you said earlier is that morality is explained by Darwinian evolution. Okay, and so Mike, <laughs> this is what we talked about last oh, time. Oh, you mean we were on last time? I don't yes, even think last right. time I brought up Darwin. Huh? Not even okay, last this time. This is I, really I because I'd asked you for. I'd asked you. I know exactly the question because I've th and the answer because I thought about it many times since then. And uh, and the, and if you want to dis dispute that or disagree with it now, you're fine. Fine. But uh, I asked the great what, about the nature of morality, and you said this is something that Darwinism explains. And I said, so then what you're saying is God is acting in a way that's inconsistent with your morality. I mean, with your evolution. Pardon me. And you said yes. Okay, get it. Now I got it. But notice how Doug protests that it didn't happen. And he's right. 
in the first and only conversation at that point, this is the closest we get. It does appear that the universe is chock full of morality, and human beings are aware of it and talk about it all the time. And it does appear that there are purposes for things, that things are designed for functions. And so all of these imply the designer, the purposer, the lawmaker, etc. behind it. Yeah, I get that answer a lot from Christians, but I guess the question is, maybe the theists have it wrong, Mm -hmm. and what we think is this meaning and purpose derived from a deity is something that evolution has given us to survive. Someone who believes in an afterlife and might not kill themselves if they think they're going to go to hell. Well, you'd have and to so- work that out evolutionarily. I think a lot of these evolutionary stories are just that. They're stories that serve a purpose, and uh, but they aren't quantified in the cellular sense at all, in the DNA sense. They're just what they call just-so stories. Often when Greg is relaying anecdotes, I'm skeptical whether they really happened. This isn't helping. So what you're saying is the depiction of the God of the Bible disagrees with your personal evolution. And he said, yes. Well, you can see how trivial that kind of objection turns out to be. The question today isn't the quality of reasoning. It's about the sincerity of belief. You seem to be putting yourself in the position of defending all sincere beliefs as well-reasoned. I'm sure my viewers' minds are drowning in counterexamples right now. It, it isn't as if atheists, for example, have a strong case. Rather, I think their case is really weak, but some, for some reason they're impressed with it. Well, no, Greg. If your argument is that everyone who claims to not believe is a liar, then we're not actually impressed. We're just pretending to be impressed, right? So I'm going to stick with Scripture, God's perspective, who says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but they made an exchange for something else. Or in the, uh, the Psalms, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, of course, in that verse, they are saying in their heart, there is no God. And the psalmist is saying, that's dumb. And then we can give the reasons why that's the case, because God's existence is obvious. That's Romans 1 stuff. So I'm going to stick with God's assessment here, Romans 1. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are consciously aware that they're lying to themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a critical distinction. I think they think of themselves that they're seeking for truth, at least on a conscious basis. But then what they'll do is they'll say things that implicitly presume the truth of a theistic worldview and, uh, and are not at all consistent with an atheistic worldview. And these moves that they make like that um, bear testimony. They are tells of the deeper conviction they actually have. Okay, good. We're back from unhelpful disparagement to a more clinical evaluation of suppressed beliefs. It is common for a person to be able to self-identify suppressed beliefs because they experience what is known as cognitive dissonance, a mental discomfort caused by attempting to hold inconsistent or incompatible beliefs at the same time. Such was the case for me in my deconversion process. 
but Greg is correct to say that suppressed beliefs can also be diagnosed externally from inconsistencies between a subject's professions and their actions or emotions. From the researcher's first-person example earlier, she consciously believed that her parents loved their children equally, but at the same time felt resentment towards gifts for her brother, and she acted to undermine him. But one mistake Greg is making is to automatically characterize the subconscious belief as having the deeper conviction, whatever that means, and assume it has greater truth value. The goal of suppressed belief therapy is to help the patient to soberly and honestly actively consider both of the conflicting beliefs and the reasons for them, so that the dispositional and current beliefs will be in alignment in the future. In some cases, the suppressed belief is indeed the more accurate reflection of reality. Another example from the paper, a person professes to have only opposite-sex attraction, and yet perceives same-sex people as attractive, and responds flirtatiously. But in other cases, as it was for the researcher, it was the consciously held belief that best reflected reality. Her therapist helped her to realize that her feelings toward her brother were unfounded. But either way, the markers of potential suppressed beliefs are cognitive dissonance or inconsistencies in actions and professed beliefs. What behaviors does Greg identify in his suppressed belief diagnosis? Like objective morality. Objective morality. When listening to apologists engage in conversation utilizing Greg's strategy manual, I observe that it is merely a lack of epistemological consideration and imprecise language that gives the impression that some support the notion of objective morality, when they really don't. Or a conflation of definitions that would suggest that atheist Sam Harris' objective morality is the same as Christian Greg Kokel objective morality. They're not. But that's a very long discussion, and I'm okay here even to grant that for some. The relevant question today is, is this true for all? I'm not here to defend the sincerity of the atheism of others. The question is, can Greg, or anyone, find any such inconsistencies on the topic of objective morality in my communication and lived actions? I suspect they cannot, in an intellectually honest way, that would persuade me. But I'm open to it. This is where the inside-out tactic in the 10th anniversary of uh, edition of Tactics comes in. I'm annoyed that I had to go get a 10th anniversary copy to find this chapter. So now I have both versions. Oh, well. There are these truths on the inside that they can't ultimately deny. And they always come out on the outside, especially when they're not defending turf. As far as Greg's Tactics book goes... This one isn't the most manipulative. Indeed, he writes, the inside-out tactic is not so much a specific maneuver as it is an insight into what it means to be human that helps us navigate in conversations. Greg tasks his readers to pay attention to when his language or actions tell the truth, even though his worldview tells the lie. Then, gently, charitably, graciously, ask him about it. Fair enough. Inconsistency in profession and action is one way to find potential suppressed beliefs. Greg's Inside Out chapter gives examples of gotcha expressions, moral obligations, value of life, uniqueness of humans, obligations to preserve the earth, and so on. The thing is, for most people, that list of common intuitions are in the category what professors would call pre-reflective dispositional beliefs, not fully considered and subconscious. Few people take a week, a month, 
or even an hour sitting down and reflecting why it is they value life or value nature. So here's the manipulation. At the end of the chapter, Greg instructs to gently ask about it. But he starts the chapter with an example of how he does this. Then I ask the question I pose frequently to groups like that. Why do we all feel guilty? I added, maybe guilt is just a cultural construction. But here's another possibility. Maybe we feel guilty because we are guilty. Is that an option in the running? Rather than prompting a neutral truth-seeking inquiry that would allow a person to come to a fact-based, well-considered harmonization between their professed belief and their suppressed belief, Greg is leading by example to offer up an alternative pre-reflective belief that can provide instant relief against any uncomfortable cognitive dissonance that the self-reflection might create. The quick fix is easier than the work of actual study and analysis. Of course, I might do the same. Offer up that maybe we value life because life is finite and rare. Maybe we value nature because without it our species would die. Maybe we have the instinct of moral obligation because empathy and well-being are so biologically fundamental to human survival advantage. And since I might do the same, my manipulation characterization of Greg may not be charitable. But I'm not finding Greg to be particularly charitable in this discussion. In his view, any time someone's resolution of professed or suppressed beliefs doesn't land on God, that is circularly merely more evidence that the person has yet another layer of suppression. Suppression all the way down, in infinite regression. This is ridiculous. Just as Greg wouldn't insist that having pockets of unexamined theology doesn't require that a Christian is subconsciously not a Christian, so too pockets of unexamined philosophy doesn't reveal a secret belief in God. Winding this all the way back to divine hiddenness, and the case for even a single non-resistant non-believer, is there even one person who does not believe in God, suffers no cognitive dissonance, carries no pre-reflective conflicting dispositional beliefs, but is genuinely open to being convinced otherwise. As far as I can evaluate, I am such a person, and am therefore justified in my non-resistant non-believer status until someone points out specific contradicting actions I take. If they do, I'll need to reevaluate. But insisting that a non-believer must carry suppressed beliefs is unfalsifiable, a presupposition, and begging the question. I'm looking at this question, and the first thing I want to say is, I don't think fool is exactly the same as stupid. This is, this is not about intelligence. This is about foolishness. You can right. be a very smart person and be foolish. Right. So it's not an insult to their intelligence. Just as I insist that you can be a very smart person and be a Christian. We are in agreement that this is not about intelligence. My IQ didn't go up or down a single point when I stopped believing. But when you ask, are there other scriptural explanations? I think the easiest one is we're fallen. Right. We're dead in our transgressions. We're by nature children of wrath. We, uh, the natural man cannot understand the, the spiritual things. We are in rebellion against God. We do not want to acknowledge him. Right. That is throughout the New Testament. And it's not even just in Romans 1, although Romans 1 is, is very explicit about that. Obviously, as a non-believer, I'm not particularly curious about scriptural explanations. But I can still observe that this isn't helpful new information 
for question asker Graham. He was asking for Bible justification for sincere truth seekers, not people in open rebellion as Amy describes. That there are resistant non-believers is a trivial observation and already built into the consideration of divine hiddenness. And by the way, toss into that mix that the, the, the devil has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. And there are actually four verses I quote frequently to, uh, to show the power. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, let's toss in the devil and see if that helps their case. Romans 10.9 gives us the salvation recipe. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Declaring with your mouth would translate to having an occurrent belief, and that must accompany believe in your heart, which probably translates to having no anti-God suppressed dispositional beliefs. So by this understanding, Pascal's wager adherents definitely don't have saving grace, because they would be suppressing disbelief. Then again, if Romans 1 holds, then Everyone has dispositional belief towards God, and it is the conscious part of the equation that humans are responsible for. Now, if Satan has the power to blind the eyes of the unbeliever, that would answer Graham's question about how a genuine truth seeker cannot see God. However, that opens the much bigger question of why a person blinded by the devil would be responsible for rejecting God. After all, It is an external force preventing belief, not their own rebellion. Such a person would be denied access to salvation because of the actions of someone else. And if you posit that Satan can blind only the people who are already in rebellion, then what is the point of the blinding? Such a person is already going to resist without Satan's intervention. And thus, this devil involvement would carry absolutely no explanatory power. One question... I like to ask, because I think this will draw out uh, maybe where the real problem is, because I think the real problem is not intellectual. The real problem is they don't like God. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, the, the way to bring that out is to say, okay, let's say I convince you that the God of the Bible actually exists. This is this is true. Mm -hmm. And what it says about him is true. And what he requires of us is true. Would you follow him? And see what they say. I've been speaking about this of late on my live channel. But yeah, if I became convinced of a flavor of Christianity that has eternal conscious torment, then I'm absolutely going to pragmatically confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and follow him. I was a Christian for decades. This would be a very easy transition for me to make. Just a hypothetical thing. Would you follow this God? Would you love this God? As love is an emotional reaction, it's impossible for me to predict whether or not I would love a hypothetical person. If I gave you a list of attributes of people I love, and then you introduced me to someone who had all those attributes, there's no guarantee I would love that person. This is a weird ask. Introduce me first, and then we'll see where it goes. Okay, Greg, ready for the next one? Sure. Greg and Amy moved on to the next question, and normally I'd end my analysis here. But their next response did add one elephant point to our conversation. This one comes from Casey in Michigan. How can we make a case for apologetics to be taught in church to pastors or elders who use 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to say that it is not necessary and we should only be sharing the simple gospel? the end of this chapter where it says a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. 
In other words, it's not the words that persuade ultimately. It's the spirit who persuades because it's a spiritual problem and it and the person has to be changed by the spirit in order to hear what they're saying. Right. That doesn't mean you don't say things well or explain things well. It just means that ultimately it is not your words that ultimately change people's hearts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I actually make this point in chapter two of the tactics book and uh and uh, and so here I'm going to say something rather bold that might like make people sit up. But um the the simple gospel is not enough to persuade people to become Christians, which is the alternate that's offered in this particular case. Huh? How could you say such a thing? Because everybody has had many times they play, shared the simple gospel with people and it never changed their lives. They just ignored it. What's missing? The thing that's missing is the work of the Spirit. Okay, did everyone catch that? Without the direct involvement to the Holy Spirit, a human cannot be persuaded of the truth of Christianity. And yet professing the truth of Christianity is the Romans 10 requirement for salvation. So let's sum up what we learned from Greg today. Every human has a pre-reflective, dispositional, subconscious belief in God. This may be in conflict with the person's conscious belief about God. This isn't good enough for salvation. Salvation requires you consciously consider, evaluate, and affirm your subconscious belief. Some people fail to affirm because of rebellion. These are resistant non-believers and are not saved due to a conscious choice they made. Some people fail to affirm because of subconscious processes, meaning their conscious selves had nothing to do with their not being saved. The devil prevents some people from consciously affirming their subconscious God belief. These people are not saved due to manipulation of their subconscious by a third party, not due to a conscious choice. Regardless of rebellion, subconscious factors, or devil intervention, a human cannot affirm God belief without Holy Spirit intervention. As the non-saved person has no control over the Holy Spirit, they are not saved, ultimately, because of the inaction of a third party. By my evaluation, this allows for at least several categories of non-resistant non-believers. Those who fail to affirm because of the devil, those who fail to affirm due to a lack of Holy Spirit, and those who fail to affirm because of subconscious processes they don't control. As even a single, non-resistant, non-believer is enough to disprove the God of the Bible via the argument for divine hiddenness, I'd say that our work here is done. All of you, we hope to see you next time. Thanks for listening. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. And this is Paul, thanking all of my supporters without whom I could not do the work of Apologia, my own personal Holy Spirits, as it were. And also a thanks to those who support by watching, commenting, and sharing. For a more detailed analysis on Divine Hiddenness, tap on the thumbnail on screen now, and I'll see you over there. Later.